Adverse events among hospitalized Medicare recipients. Long COVID after breakthrough COVID infection. A modification of CAR T cell therapy for someone with pancreas cancer. And what's the risk of someone that has pneumonia and also developed atrial fibrillation? That's what we're talking about this week on Double T Health Watch, your weekly look at the medical headlines from Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso. I'm Elizabeth Tracy, a Baltimore-based medical journalist. And I'm Rick Lang, president of Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso, where I'm also dean of the Paul L. Foster School of Medicine. Okay, we know what to do. It's the COVID stuff. So you're on Nature Medicine. We've talked before about long COVID symptoms. This is a new twist. For people that have had vaccination already and then develop a COVID infection, so-called breakthrough COVID infection, do they also develop long COVID symptoms? This is a large study using the U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs National Healthcare Database to build a cohort of almost 34,000 people that had breakthrough infection, and they compared them to several controls, about 5 million contemporary controls, a little under 6 million historical controls, and about 2.5 million people that have been vaccinated. At six months after the breakthrough infection, people had a higher risk of death than the controls, about a 75% higher risk of death, a 50% increased risk of having cardiovascular, coagulation, hematologic, GI, kidney, mental health, metabolic, musculoskeletal, or neurologic disorders. That would seem to indicate that, in fact, you can develop long COVID symptoms, increased mortality, even after a breakthrough infection. Now, when they compared that to people that hadn't been properly vaccinated, however, the incidence was lower than those individuals, about a 34% lower risk of death with vaccination, even after a breakthrough infection, and about a 15% lower incidence of having long-term sequela than those that did not get vaccinated. Let's talk about comorbidities and pre-existing conditions, even in the fully vaccinated population, because I think that they also had this population, the VA population, just has a sort of higher overall risk of that anyway. They do. It's an older population. This is primarily men, about 90% were men. Now, again, what they did was they had such a large number of individuals, they could compare them, and no matter what control group they used, they were still able to have the same results. So it seems pretty robust. So it's a little bit disconcerting in a way, isn't it? I mean, there are risks relative to long COVID development, irrespective of your vaccine status. Right. The authors make the point is you can't just rely on vaccination alone. We still have to isolate or wear masks, other measures as well. Vaccination alone clearly reduces mortality. It reduces long COVID symptoms, even in people with a breakthrough infection, but it doesn't completely negate those effects. Since we're talking about big populations and also the federal government, which of course manages the VA population, let's look at a couple other federal government agencies in this report on the experience of adverse events by hospitalized Medicare recipients. I would like to tell everybody who wants to take a look at this report that they need to go right to page 39, which to me was the most revelatory part of this report. In 2008, they took a look at this exact same issue. Gosh, what percentage of Medicare recipients who are hospitalized experience an adverse event or harm during their hospitalization? And then they looked at this again in 2018. 2008, they had an N of 780, 2018, 770. Those who experienced adverse event or temporary harm, 27% in 2008, 25% in 2018. Adverse event alone, 13% in 2008, 12% in 2018. Temporary harm, exactly the same. 
preventable. They asked a physician cohort to take a look at this and say, is this thing preventable? In 2008, 44% were preventable. In 2018, 43% were preventable. I find this to be just absolutely disconcerting because there have been so many initiatives underway to try to reduce the incidence of these harmful events and especially these preventable ones. The Medicare arrived at these data by doing random sampling of just 770 charts. They had the nurses review them first. And if the nurses thought that there was something preventable, then it went to the doctors to actually confirm that. And so we're basing this on a, a relatively small number of, of charts, but it's probably fairly representative. What were the adverse events and the harms? Most of the events were medication areas. Some were patient care. Some had to do with the procedure of surgery or infection. They did kind of drill down on that. For example, the patient care adverse events were mostly things like pressure injury or skin tear or abrasion or breakdown, occasionally a fall. The medication errors were mostly related to medications that caused the patient to have delirium or other changes in mental status. You mentioned the fact that we've tried to address this. It's clear that the things that we've picked out aren't the things that people are experiencing. 5% of the adverse events would have been picked up by the things we're currently monitoring and trying to change. That means we're focusing on the wrong things. Is that your recollection from the article as well, Elizabeth? It is indeed. It's really rather sad that we've got this huge emphasis on things that are really irrelevant to this issue of harm. Let's focus on the right things. Let's develop some national standards. Let's develop some best practices that we're sharing those things as well. I serve as, as part of a safety monitoring committee for one of the units at Hopkins, and it's just really disappointing to consider that all of this energy and effort and attention that gets paid to this doesn't really seem to be impacting that much. And that's why we do studies like this. And so I think this study is really very helpful, this report, but it does give us some actionable items that we can work on. Okay. Let's turn to JAMA Network Open. I had no idea that there was this risk in patients with pneumonia. Individuals who have pneumonia have an infection and inflammation. It's not uncommon for these individuals to develop transient atrial fibrillation, irregular heart rhythm in the upper chamber of the heart. Atrial fibrillation is associated with a five-fold increased risk of stroke. And typically, in individuals that have atrial fibrillation and risk factors for a stroke, we put them on long-term anticoagulation. But we've not known what to do with these individuals that have atrial fibrillation in the setting of pneumonia, and we're left holding the bag saying, well, gosh, what do you do about that? So they looked at almost 275,000 patients that were hospitalized for community-acquired pneumonia. About 6,500 patients actually developed new-onset atrial fibrillation. They looked at the one-year risk of having a clot in individuals that just had pneumonia and no atrial fibrillation, the risk was about 0.8% at one year. If you had atrial fibrillation, it was almost three times as high. It was 2.1%. And if you look even further in individuals that had pneumonia, atrial fibrillation, and were considered to be higher risk individuals, that was 2.8%. The three-year risk was 3.5% and 5.3% for individuals that had atrial fibrillation with intermediate and high risk. So this indicates that the risk is high. The thought may be is that these people have an underlying risk for atrial fibrillation, and the pneumonia just kind of brings it out, and it puts them at a higher risk over the subsequent years, and we need to look at them more carefully in terms of providing anticoagulation. Well, and the other thing that we've talked about before is this incidence of community-acquired pneumonia and how it's increasing. And so this could be pointing to something that could emerge as a pretty big public health problem. And it is. This was a study that was easily done with over a quarter of a million patients. You're right. It is a big public health problem. 
And so this sort of reminds me also of long COVID in that, gosh, what are the infectious disease triggers for some of these other conditions that become chronic? Yeah, these are individuals that probably have an increased risk anyway, and just the inflammation that's associated with just brings it out earlier than one would normally see it. Finally, let's turn to the New England Journal of Medicine, and this is actually just a case report. It's a, an N of one, a single patient in whom they utilize something called neoantigen T-cell receptor gene therapy in pancreas cancer, female, 71 years old, who had metastatic disease. And what they did was they infused autologous T-cells that had been genetically engineered to clonally express two allogeneic HLA-restricted T-cell receptors targeting KRAS that's actually expressed by the tumor. So that's a whole lot of jargon, right? But what basically happens, as we know, is that these cancers acquire additional defects as they develop. And what they did was engineer some of these T-cells so that they could target those specific acquired mutations that are called hotspot mutations. And those are called hotspots because they're frequently mutated in people with different types of cancers. In this case, they were able to reduce her visceral metastases by 72%. And I thought that was a really interesting number because it's really classically very difficult to assess what somebody's subdiaphragmatic metastases really look like. But even so, it's impressive. And this is a modification of CAR T cells. Basically, CAR T cells, as we know, really helpful in blood cancers, but classically not that helpful in other kinds of cancers. So that's what this particular report is about. And I think it's noteworthy because CAR T cells, of course, also ferociously expensive. Yeah. So let's be hit on one thing that is CAR T cell therapy hasn't been as useful in what we call solid tumor cancers like pancreatic cancer. And furthermore, pancreatic cancer remains resistant to current therapies. And it's one of the most lethal cancers in humans. And this is a particular patient that had received all the usual chemotherapy. And unfortunately, the tumor had become resistant. And they identified, as you said, this particular pathway to allow the T cells to infiltrate inside the tumor they gave interleukin to support the expansion of the T cells as well. What we don't know is the durability of this. And they also highlighted in the paper is that they had given similar therapy to another patient and it really wasn't very beneficial. I think the more of these things that can be done, the more likely it is that we're going to develop a solution that can be more broadly applicable. Yeah. Now, the unfortunate thing is this particular genetic mutation occurs in oh, about 8% of white persons with pancreatic cancer in about 11% of black persons in the U.S. and lower percentage in uh, other ethnicities and racial groups. So it wouldn't be applicable to a large group of individuals, but it does highlight the importance of identifying the molecular mechanisms or genetic malformations or genetic variations that occur so we can give specific targeted therapy to these individuals. Right. I absolutely agree with that. And I would just note that that's something that, of course, is going to be an ongoing task with regard to somebody's cancer because the cancer is going to be acquiring additional mutations over time. Absolutely. Good point. That's a look at this week's medical headlines from Texas Tech. I'm Elizabeth Tracy. And I'm Rick Lang. Y'all listen up and make healthy choices.